Good afternoon from Sydney, Australia. It is Tuesday, the 23rd of October, 2012. My name is Kevin Garber and with me is James Peter. We are both the co-founders of 89N, which is the home of Managed Flitter, Check Dog Tour Car, a few other bits and pieces. And you are listening to episode number six of the It's a Monkey podcast. We have a terrific podcast coming up for you today. As usual, we're going to start out with a little bit of tech news, talking about what's uh, new and interesting in the tech world. We also have some two interesting guests coming up. Um, We have um, someone who is going to talk about some interesting research that came out about Twitter users, that Twitter users have higher cognitive ability, i.e. that is code for being smarter than non-Twitter users. And of course, that really made my week since I'm a big Twitter user. And we're also going to be talking about some of the other, uh, some of the LinkedIn changes. LinkedIn is not a social network that we talk about a lot, but we are, are going to talk about an expert around the LinkedIn changes. So stay with us. The LinkedIn esp- expert is Donna Sadula. She is um, an expert LinkedIn profile writer and seems to be very passionate about LinkedIn. And we will also be speaking to Cherie Curtis, who's head of psychology at OneTest, which is uh, a company that provides assessment tools for interviewing. But let's kick it off with some of the news. James, hello, welcome. Hi, good to be back after two weeks, is it? It's been a while. I mean, we, we, we try to keep the frequency up, but um, between some of your travels, my travels, and, and trying to build a a fast-growing tech startup in the interim, it isn't always easy. It gets pretty busy. Um, how's your week been? Yeah, it's been okay. Could have been better. Had a few <laughs> had a few uh, downtime issues in Managed Flitter, but uh, let's not talk about those. <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, you might um, yeah, not be aware. James and I are building a business uh, with a couple of products. So we're actually real-life living, breathing um tech entrepreneurs that really are living on the coal face and uh it's it's the proverbial roller coaster but um it's just like roller coasters they 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 are a lot of fun even though you have the ups and the downs so let's get right into it and james speaking of downtime downtime i see earlier today amazon's cloud servers were down again yeah they did seem to go down and take a big uh, chunk of the internet down as they as they usually did. Um, it seemed to be isolated to their uh, Virginia data center, um, but unfortunately that's their main data center. I think it's their original one and probably their largest. largest. Um, so it took down a few sites. I believe it was, uh, uh, what was it, went down? GitHub, actually no, GitHub didn't go down, just their status page went down. Um, Reddit went down for a while um, and a few other bits of a few major sites. Um, I didn't notice any sites going down. Did you see anything actually disappearing? I didn't know. I didn't. I mean, I don't use GitHub. Um, yeah, I also, I'm not really a huge Reddit user. Um, I was reading one of the articles about Amazon going down and um, they published a tweet from a, a new startup called Assets in Seats. I'm not quite sure what that company is about, but they tweeted out, we picked today to publicly launch and our hosting prompted, promptly died. Coincidence or a sign? So you can imagine uh, with all the stresses of launch day and that your, your hosting company lets you down. But um, of course, Amazon Cloud Services are really, really interesting company. If uh, you on, on the less technical end of the spectrum 
um, and listening to us. It's Amazon Cloud Services are essentially um, providers of um, infrastructure that people can build their their websites ranging from very simple websites to very complicated websites and they allow you to to build them in a very incremental scalable manner and Amazon manage and provide this service obviously at a cost and some very very significant websites use Amazon I think probably some of the more high profile ones like you mentioned Reddit's um, GitHub and, and Netflix, I believe. Yeah, ne- Netflix use them. Um, I, Twitter definitely uses them. Um, yeah, pretty much everybody except, um, you know, Google Microsoft. obviously doesn't. Microsoft obviously doesn't. They've got their own data centers. But yeah. um, uh, even Facebook, I wouldn't be surprised if they had a little bit of infrastructure on there. Um, actually, no, probably not. No, I think Facebook has their own data centers. But, um, yeah, no, it's definitely definitely a big chunk of the internet. It's still not clear uh, why it went down. Last time it went down, it was a big electrical storm, um, whereas this time um, I think they're still fixing the issues. But I'm sure we'll see a detailed um, blog post from them later on analyzing all of the, the factors that went into it. Um, they're really quite good at being transparent. Yeah, they are. That They do actually... Um, if you are using these services, there are ways you can actually avoid downtime as well. They have uh, geographically isolated data centers and you can, um, you know, build your infrastructure to work across multiple locations, uh, which means if one of your locations go down, then your site still stays up. Um, and every time this happens, people complain how, how ridiculous it is all these sites go down because this feature exists. Um, but of course, to use this feature, you've got to be kind of paying twice as much because you've got to have your data stored in two places. And of course, the architectural overhead that goes into it is pretty high as well. It's just a huge amount of work to to build that kind of system. but um, And they're so reliable generally that yeah. it's, it almost doesn't pay you to layer that redundancy in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the cost of, you know, half an hour downtime versus versus all that extra overhead that could slow down your product development as well as kind of a, a trade-off that people have to take. Um, I'm sure I'm sure they'll continue to improve it as well. I mean, in an, in an ideal world, all of that would happen transparently and Amazon would just migrate your servers to a different geographic location if they saw them going down. But um, there's a bunch of barriers to that, which is why it hasn't happened yet. But um, I'm, sure, I'm sure we'll see it eventually. I mean, it's, you know, at the end of the day, even though we have all these sophisticated, slick, sexy services, Pinterest and Instagram and, you know, use fancy Apple Mac Airs, it's on a reductionist level, it still comes down to this unsexy, you know, bits and bytes elements that sort of stops at the data centers. Yeah, sure does. It was interesting to see that um, Google opened up their data center or one of their data centers for the first time to the press recently. Yeah, I saw that. Um, in fact, you can even see it online. It's got the they've got a website with videos and even uh, kind of a um, a street view type walkthrough of the data center. Did yeah. you? I, I haven't. I've I've got it noted. I'd like to have a look at it because I am sort of intrigued by it. Did you have a look at it? Yeah, I, I mean it's kind of interesting. I mean it, it just looks like a big factory really with lots of computers and it's nothing you know particularly uh, amazing they have lots of uh, google colored pipes <laughs> which is the the interesting part of it um, and it's all quite neat obviously but um but yeah yeah it's i mean it's 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 amazing the amount of data centers and servers they must they must build in order to keep their systems alive it's crazy I once went on a tour of one of sydney's big uh, data centers probably the biggest one in sydney and um 
it's half interesting and half really boring at the same time. I mean, what was interesting, they showed me a customer which was uh, one of the big animators in Sydney that did a lot of animation for The Matrix. And even though in the data centers, they actually obviously have to provide cooling because the machines generate so much heat, this company had needed to have extra cooling because of all the rendering that needed to be done. Their racks were wrapped in Freon tubes. So they wow. had Freon wrapped around it, keeping it cool. It was all very, very high tech. <laughs> That's crazy. But yeah, there was an article recently, a fascinating article about um, you know the, the dirty secret of the tech industry being the energy use of data centers. You know, the tech industry mm. likes to put forward that it's, you know, saving paper and it's more efficient. And But these data centers are, are incredibly power hungry. Yeah, it's true to a point. I mean, a lot of the... A lot of the power usage really comes from over-redundancy as well. I mean, when you work in the enterprise level, you kind of have to, you know, have three layers of redundancy and everything has to be stored in multiple locations. So it really does blow out the the cost of serving all these systems. Um, and of course, you've got to have provisions in order to keep it up when all the power goes down. So there's an awful lot of overhead there, which is kind of demanded by consumers, uh, you know, for constant access to this data. Um, but, um, I, I mean, it depends Depends which way you look at it. I mean, I, I think actually even in that Google data center report, they did, uh, they sort of demonstrated how much cost uh, it took to do, I think it was like a, a thousand web searches. Um, and I think it was equivalent to the energy in like, you know, 100 mils of orange juice or something or running a light bulb for an hour or something. Yeah, well, so. look, the economies of scale yeah. is, is so massive, but they're fixed costs and the fixed energy use. And um, you know, when you, you add it up, it gets pretty big. Yeah. And I mean, you know, they're probably the same people that, uh, you know, demand um, green energy are the same ones that get really cranky when their iPhones keep dying as well. So <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So we sort of we sort of want it both ways. And it's, it's very hidden from us, I guess. And uh, we're not very aware. But um, look, I know I know the Googles and the Facebooks do try to do interesting things where we sort of build their data centers next, next to hydroelectric dams, or even to build their data centers in places like Iceland, where actually the cooling uh, needs to be, you know, a lot less because it's inherently cooler. Um, so they are aware of this issue, and um, it's obviously a, a, a very core part of of the food chain. Um, but yeah, um, what else is happening? I saw that the United Nations re- released an interesting paper called uh, "The Use of the Internet for Terrorist Purposes." Um, <laughs> which is uh, quite a dramatic, almost, almost, uh, uh, you know, almost throwing down the gauntlet type of title. <laughs> That's quite a uh, a deep topic to get into, I think. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, basically, what basically what they were talking about is that uh, you know, as as much as uh, the internet is a is a great tool for distributing all kinds of information, you kind of get the the good with the bad, and um, you know, it does make distributing terrorist information really quite easy um, and if if you do want to look up you know becoming a terrorist for example if that come pops in idea pops in your head it's probably the the easiest time in history to actually uh, get that information you know you can search for it really easily on google um, and you know that kind of information is sort of being spread uh, through the social networks as well um, making them kind of propaganda machines um, having said that, as they do say in that article, you know, Facebook and 
presumably Twitter and Google as well, do have a lot of infrastructure in place to, um, you know, get rid of a lot of the a lot of the bad content. Um, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, Facebook says, oh yeah, our policies very clearly prohibit praise, support, or representation of terrorism, terrorist groups, and individuals, and acts of terrorism. There is no place on Facebook for people who promote violence and we devote significant resources to prevent even the rare instances when people do try to misuse our service. Well, on the, on the flip side, though, it actually provides, technology provides a fantastic way for law enforcement to capture them That's and true. slash monitor, which is obviously getting into the controversial, you know, civil libertarian sort of arguments but, it, it, you know, mobile phone networks have long been used to track people, so it's... Yeah, I'm sure that's why you see very few, um, you know, terrorist cells in sort of westernized countries, just because, you know, it's imp- almost impossible to, to you know, communicate about this stuff um, and, you know, on any kind of scale and not, not be monitored. Um, and, yeah, it does make it very easy to pick up. What I found interesting was at the beginning of this report, Ban Ki-moon, who's the Secretary General of the UN, they, they started this report with a quote from him that said, the internet is a prime example of how terrorists can behave in a truly transnational way. In response, states need to think and function in an equally transnational manner. And what I found interesting about this quote is it really gets to the heart of nation states. You know, essentially, originally nation states were were bounded by physical territory and an army, and there was good sense for that. And you know, even the wars these days are being fought in in, in you know in terrorist organizations within nation states. And I, I still reflect, I still think, you know, is the concept of a nation state um, is this technology eventually going to punch holes in it? I mean, it has already. But is it going to even, you know, punch deeper holes into it? Mm-hmm. It's an interesting topic. I mean, you can see, you can def- definitely see things sort of falling apart. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's just information really spreads so much, so much, much, uh, e- much more easily these days. It's kind of like you know, even when you sort of go shopping, it's like, uh, you know, in, in the old days, it used to be a case that you know you kind of just had to live with whatever prices your local retailers sold. Whereas nowadays, you know, if you you want to purchase something in the US which is half the price you know you can get delivered for 10 10 bucks and the information uh, and the internet's really sort of opened up you know that that visibility like people actually know that it's there um, and you know it makes I think it makes it it must make it very hard for you know oppressive states uh, you know to really exist if, if people can can see through the internet these much freer societies um, you know they're going to keep demanding that they get that themselves and i think you can probably see that with a lot of these revolutions happening and interesting you mentioned last time we had a bit of a banter about freedom of speech and you mentioned you mentioned bahrain and there was an article that i sent you about um that they encouraged the bahrainian parliamentarians to join twitter do you remember that oh no i don't don't know if i read it um which which i found really quite interesting i'll, I'll see if i can um just very quickly bring that up but um yeah i mean it's it's, it's certainly the democratization um bahrain um let's see if it's come up in the first um 
Um, no, I can't. I can't find it. Um, but yeah. Anyway, it's, we'll, we'll we'll talk about that next time. But yeah, it, you know, it, it, the tech, the velocity of change and information and 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 um, efficiency of markets is really quite um, quite astounding. And and will it, you know, really erode the concept of nation states? I mean, technology already uh, allows the movements of. Of, of of human capital even you know i suppose with the jet airliner and, and things started um mm -hmm. you know that even today states really compete for for good people actually you yeah, know that's the, true yeah. the, the, there's australia america the uk are all competing for the top tier of people and um it's do nation states you know they, they certainly moved a long way anyway that's uh that's our sort of token big issue <laughs> for the day <laughs> So um, you're listening to James, Peter, and Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at Monkey Podcast. Please also find us on Facebook on Monkey Podcast. We love hearing from you. We do have uh, hundreds of you, nearly thousands of you listening to us, which is terrific. The top two countries that listen to us, number one, the United States of America, number two, Australia, and then all sorts of uh, other countries along the way. But drop us an email, drop us a tweet, and um, we um, really you know open to suggestions of of what to talk about and if you would like to even be featured on the show we have a pretty open brief here we've started out the podcast with talking about you know broadly saying it's around the tech economy but um next podcast i believe we're even going to be talking about stem cells with a leading researcher um of stem cells so it's not directly tech economy but certainly um we open to to anything that um, is loosely related so coming up after the break i'll be talking to donna sedula about some of the linkedin changes and also how best to optimize your linkedin profile pages um, so we'll be back with you after the break the it's a monkey podcast is brought to you by manage flitter with Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at Manage Flitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. You back listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter on the It's a Monkey podcast coming to you not live, almost live from Sydney, Australia. It is a beautiful spring day as it is here. Now, we don't often talk about LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the quiet achiever of the social media world. I've got a LinkedIn profile. I bet you do too. And did you know that LinkedIn has had some changes over the last little while, probably not as high profile changes as some of the Twitter changes and Facebook changes where we always hear about and, and get to know about. So I thought for a change, we'll actually talk to a LinkedIn expert, which was actually harder than I thought to find. There seems to be a lot of Twitter experts and Facebook experts, and you would think there'd be more LinkedIn experts, but I struggled to find one. I actually reached out to LinkedIn myself, but interestingly, LinkedIn don't make it easy to get official spokespeople, um, and we aren't even allowed to chat to LinkedIn staff. I approached some of the LinkedIn staff, and they said um, no can do, which is quite different to Twitter and Face and and Google, where we've been able to talk to some of the um, the people that work there pretty pretty easily. But I tracked down a LinkedIn expert on the east coast of the USA, so I'd like to welcome. 
to the It's a Monkey podcast, Donna Sudula, who's a LinkedIn profile expert. She has the website LinkedInMakeover.com and has apparently helped thousands of people, Donna, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. I've been doing this for three years and I help people from all over the world, individuals, professionals, companies optimize their LinkedIn profile to tell their story and impress their network. And uh, I believe LinkedIn has 175 million registered customers. So you've uh, you've got the first few thousand under your belt. You've got a few to go. Yeah, we, we've got a few people with nice looking profiles. It's it's been a uh, <laughs> it's something we have to keep continuing to do. Though there's a lot of profiles out there that need saving. Well, Donna, thanks for joining us. And let's talk us through some of the changes that LinkedIn announced last week. Sure. I think that the biggest the biggest change is an entirely uh, new profile. It has really changed the way it looks. Uh, a lot of the, uh, quite honestly, a lot of the content's still the same, but they're really going for a much more visual look. In fact, it looks a bit like an infographic. Now, I will tell you, not a lot of people have it right now. It looks almost like it's just LinkedIn employees that have this new profile, but they are rolling it out slowly, and they're giving people the opportunity to opt in and, and request an invitation. Uh, but it's it's a much different uh, profile uh, in, in terms of its looks. Uh, like I said, it's very graphic, and it's really trying to you know bring people back daily. It's trying to give updates, and... Uh, it's really trying to go for a more social feel. And I think that was my next question I was going to ask you is I popped into my LinkedIn profile and nothing seemed different. So it seems like they are progressively rolling it out, obviously, to iron out glitches along the way and uh, make a few tweaks as they as they um, proceed. But it is quite interesting. I, um, I, I saw some of your, your comments on, on your blog post about it, and it does seem that LinkedIn just like Twitter, just like Facebook, are really plugging into the, the, the visual push on the net, so to speak. Um, of course, Instagram, which is the, the, the darling child of social media at the moment, is, is totally photos-based. So it definitely seems to be a trend that we are getting and appreciating the more visual aspect of human connections. Oh, yeah. In fact, you know, at one time with LinkedIn, it was... It almost it was almost just assumed you'd get you know a picture of your you know from your webcam and post that as your profile picture and you were good to go and it really only showed in one place which was on your profile but now the way they're working it is your profile picture is being used over and over and over again on your profile on other people's profile uh, it's it's even I mean you're even just your face is being used uh, like never before and probably even more so than on Twitter or Facebook they have it on recommendations uh, in the connections on the skills and expertise section you have to really be careful now you've got to make sure that profile picture looks good I think um yeah, I think that's probably, and I would imagine that's one of your your core pieces of advice is have a photo that actually captures a little bit what you're about. I don't think you necessarily have to look hot and sexy or anything, but what I see in a lot of photos is it doesn't really capture what what people represent. Right, and and you're right. You don't have to look hot and sexy or like a supermodel, but you should look warm, you should look friendly, you should look well-adjusted, and above all, you should look very professional because LinkedIn is 
a professional social network and you're not going to see those vacation pictures or, you know, uh, posts about kittens or jokes or things like that. When you said uh, you must look well-adjusted, I, <laughs> I had images of people that don't look well-adjusted. And uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how you can ensure you look well-adjusted. But yes, I would imagine that's quite important. Oh, Kevin, if, if only you saw some of these profile pictures that people post. It's, it's a little scary. But I think if people have a hard time, I think if people have a hard time looking at themselves objectively, I think they have a hard time telling their own story. And, and that's one of the things about the the profile, a lot of people think of it as, as a resume, and it's it's really not a resume. It is a place to tell your own professional story, and, and that is a bit of a struggle for people. Well, tell, tell us a little bit, you know, you obviously live, eat, and breathe LinkedIn a, a lot more than other people. If it is not an online resume, what is it? I've always struggled a little bit with LinkedIn. I've been on it since, um, you know, word go. It's probably the social media network I log into the least, that I use mm -hmm. the least. I get the whole recruitment type of angle to LinkedIn, but I've always wondered, am I missing something else in the social media network? What, uh, what do people use LinkedIn for? What are some interesting benefits, some value adds, how people use it or should be using it? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, to, just to, to, to go back to it, like I said, it, it isn't a resume. If you think of what your resume is, it's your professional past. It's your career history. But your LinkedIn profile is your career future. It's, it's who you are today. It's, it's the value you add, the impact that you make on organizations. Uh, it's, it's, it should be interesting. It should be engaging uh, because people are searching for you. They're researching and they want to learn more. And more often than not, it is your LinkedIn profile that, that turns up in the search results. And you really want to take that opportunity as your digital introduction and your first impression to really make an impact. And you know, people are using LinkedIn you know, above and beyond that for recruitment or for trying to find a job. It, it really is used to build your network. It's a way of interacting. It's a way of uh, selling yourself, selling your products, selling your, yourself. But it's also a way of you know, finding people who can help you and, and networking. It's really an amazing, it's amazing social network. And I think a lot of people, uh, Kevin, are like you, where they're, they're not using it as adequately as they could. Uh, there are a lot of people who are getting a lot of opportunity from it. But um, I think that's what, what a lot of these changes are about that LinkedIn is doing, is they're trying to get you to come back, trying to, for you to see a little bit more easily how it can be used as a real sales tool. I've always wanted to love LinkedIn. I mean, I love Reid Hoffman. I've heard him talk at uh, many conferences. I think he's the founder of LinkedIn. I think mm -hmm. he's an amazingly smart guy, and I think he's great for our industry. I've always really wanted to love LinkedIn, but I've just, I never find myself logging in. I, 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 I have seen that they've added some sort of social news service, which seems kind of interesting. Um, mm -hmm. They also added the ability to update a status, which seems quite interesting. But um, give us give us maybe your top three tips, Donna, in terms of how better to make use of your profile and LinkedIn for your professional or personal benefit. Okay. Well, you know, in terms of how to really best use your LinkedIn profile, one, I've already made mention of it, but use a pro professionally taken photograph. Uh, 
you know, profiles that have photos are, I, I think it's nine times or maybe it's seven times, whatever it is, it's, it's, it's quite a bit more likely for people to open your profile if there is a profile picture. So that's, that's huge. Uh, the other thing is, is don't take it as a resume. Really use this opportunity to tell your message. Use it as a professional manifesto. That way you stand out. And the other part of it is you really do want to think of it as you know, a, a engine, an engine for um, that people might be looking to find you. And you want to make sure that you're going to turn up. And in that regard, what you want to do is think about it in terms of if a person is looking for you and they don't know your name, what would those keywords be? And once you recognize what those keywords are, you want to pepper them throughout your profile. And that way you can collide with opportunity. So when people talk about you know, the wonderful things that have happened on LinkedIn, a lot of times it's because someone was looking for someone like them and they were able to find them via their profile. So tell us a couple of those stories of those wonderful things that have happened on LinkedIn because I can tell stories about wonderful things that have happened to me via Twitter in terms of networking and contacts and business opportunities. But, so tell us some of uh, the stories on your end. Sure. I actually just got a phone call just the other day from a client who had gone, you know, had gone through an optimization of her LinkedIn profile. And, you know, she said to me that suddenly she was connecting with past colleagues, people that she hadn't heard from in ages, you know, and, and they were interested in finding out more about her. And she started to get invitations uh, to go to events. She started getting people calling because they were interested in hiring her. She was getting job opportunities thrown at her that, you know, really amazing things that she wasn't even expecting. It wasn't even really seeking out. She mainly wanted to brand herself more professionally. She wanted really for this to be almost an executive branding statement. And, you know, as soon as she really put her best foot forward and, and uh, you know, kind of uh, put that stick in the ground, you know, she was really amazed at, you know, the things that started happening. You know, people took notice, they were impressed, and they, and opportunities started to fly. Is LinkedIn appropriate for new graduates at all with limited experience? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. I mean, right now they say 95% uh, of employers today are using social media for recruitment purposes. Of that 95%, 80% are using LinkedIn. And so, people are like i said researching you so you know even if even if they're not necessarily going onto linkedin looking for a specific candidate oftentimes if they see their resume and they like the way the person looks they're they're going to plug their name into linkedin to find out more and why wouldn't you if you could see a person's network if you could see recommendations if you could see endorsements if you could see what groups they belong to if you could really get a, a real a view of this individual outside of that you know very boring very tactical resume and and it was free to do so why wouldn't you and you know really you know even even graduates who have limited experience i mean they should absolutely be on linkedin putting their best foot forward and really showcasing who they are and highlighting their skills so you know they will be chosen do you have shares in linkedin as a matter of interest <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny that you ask. I do. Um, I don't have a lot, but I, uh, I I have to tell you, I've been on LinkedIn since 2005. When were they actually I, launched? Mm -hmm. uh, was it around 2002, 2003? Yeah, 2002. I right. came on in 2005, and I wasn't always writing LinkedIn profiles. I was in sales and marketing. And I was using LinkedIn 
to grow my territory. I was using it to as really a sales tool, and I was using it even back then, um, and it it worked for me. Um, and I think you know, if coming from that sales background and really understanding the concept of a, a CRM, you know, contact relationship management tool, LinkedIn just just sort of made sense to me. Um, and of course, it took a little while to really get the the feel for it, but. You know, once you start connecting, once you optimize your presence, once you get on there and splash around, uh, there's there's a lot of people on there. It's a lot of professionals. And what's nice is you're not getting sidetracked by all of the, you know, cute and fuzzy things that you find on Facebook and on Twitter. So it really I does like offer a very- I like getting sidetracked. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do too. I do too. I, I love Facebook and I do love Twitter. But LinkedIn does offer a little bit more of a focused- um, network uh it's it's professional and and i think a lot of the people who are scared of facebook and they're scared of twitter they feel a little bit more at home at on linkedin because of that professional nature i think it's also a lot more slow moving it's a little bit more static i think i think the velocity of something like twitter it really just intimidates a lot of people and in fact later on in the show we'll be talking um about some australian research that came out around some graduates that has correlated cognitive ability i.e a, a nice word to say for intelligence um that that twitter users are, uh, the predictor is that twitter users tend to have a higher cognitive ability um than people that that aren't huge fans of twitter's and one of the reasons seems to be that because twitter is quite a versatile flexible fast-moving medium it, it, it really um, requires a little bit of, of brain power to get your head around it well, I think with, with LinkedIn, it, you're right. It was for a very long time, very static. I mean, people could go in there, they'd update their profile once and they'd be done with it. And, and the, the nice thing though with LinkedIn is you could still find opportunity even if you weren't you know, hitting it all the time. Um, but you know, LinkedIn realizes that they do need people to be coming back more daily. Um, and that's why they are integrating this activity feed. Uh, that's why they have their news feed. And th that's one of the reasons why I think they got rid of Twitter um, because it was polluting the feed and it was sort of stopping people from paying attention uh, to what was going on LinkedIn. And I do, so- I do believe it was Twitter that got rid of LinkedIn though. Well, how, however it worked, the politics of it, the politics, I, yeah. I believe it no, has worked in LinkedIn favor, but, um, oh yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, when you, a lot of people were abusing it where, uh, you know, everything was, was hitting both networks. And so it was almost like a one-sided conversation on the LinkedIn side. And I think it turned a lot of people off, but I, I think you're going to find that, that, that stagnancy, that slowness that you, you, you talked about, I think you're, you're, you might find, you might be pleasantly surprised with what's happening with LinkedIn in the, in the coming months. Well, I'm looking at the share price graph at the moment and um, they definitely, uh, their share price is sustaining. It's um, listed at, what, about 90, I think. Um, and it is now, what, it topped at about $125, and it seems to be now at about $105. Does that sound about right? $106. That that could be. I, I try not to look because it might hurt me. <laughs> but <laughs> you, seem to be, you seem to be doing okay. I, I don't have LinkedIn shares. I've got a few Facebook shares, and um, I'm still quite bullish on, on Facebook, but that's maybe a discussion for another day. Um, Donna Sadula from LinkedInMakeover.com. 
gmail.com. We will be putting your links up in the show notes. Um, I'd like to chat to you again when their further LinkedIn profile changes. I think um, you're definitely one of the few, um, you know, um, real deal LinkedIn experts out there. So I'd like to touch base again, if that's okay. And I really... Oh, I would... Yeah, I would love to talk. I always love talking about LinkedIn. It really is a, a subject that I, I'm passionate about. And I really do feel that people can get a lot out of it if they just uh, if they just learned a little bit more about it. So and that's what I, I'm here to do. I think you feel about LinkedIn like I feel about Twitter. I can probably chat about Twitter day and night and even built a business around it. So uh, I think we'll work well together. And I really appreciate you joining us on the It's a Monkey podcast. And um, thanks and uh, have a good day. And uh, from, from Sydney to uh, Philadelphia, you're in? Philadelphia, indeed, home of Rocky. <laughs> home of Rocky. And uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was originally from there, wasn't he, Will Smith? Yeah, I believe he was, well, absolutely. There you go. So uh, a lot happening in your world. So um, we'll put your link up on the website, and um, I'm sure some people would be really interested to see what you're up to. And thanks again. Oh, Kevin, thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. James, what do you think of LinkedIn? Uh, you know, I find LinkedIn quite interesting. Um, I've, I've had an account on there for a while, uh, and I update it occasionally, but to be honest, I can't say I've ever got anything useful out of it. Um, I, I feel the same. That's exactly the way I feel. I, the, I kind of feel like there's, there's some big world there or something that people are using it for. And I just haven't, haven't really ever understood how they get access to it, or maybe I don't have the right connections or something. There's just something missing, um, in LinkedIn for me. I was talking to a fellow business owner on the weekend and he says they pay 10,000 Australian dollars a year to access some sort of recruitment module. Oh, okay. So I, I believe recruitment's really big on LinkedIn. Uh, so I think maybe, in, you know, we, we, we scrappy tech startup. I think, I, I don't know, in the sort of more, you know, corporate enterprise end of the world, if people are doing all this wheeling and dealing of human capital mm-hmm. and headhunting on LinkedIn. I do use it when I travel and I'm reaching out to people and other CEOs and, and I know they'll be on LinkedIn and I send them email messages through LinkedIn, as I mentioned um, in the interview, but that that's about it. It's nothing draws me to come back there in the same way that the other social media networks do. Mm. I mean, th- there must be there must be something quite strong. I mean, you can understand that data of uh, of you know employment histories and everything kind of relating to employment must must be quite powerful for for recruiters. But um, I don't know. Maybe it's just because we're out of it here in Sydney or something. I'm, I just don't know. Like I just I never. I never sort of, uh, uh, I don't even know where you would go to try and recruit somebody through LinkedIn or like, I mean, yeah, maybe it is. You've got to pay for these expensive, expensive modules. Is that from LinkedIn or from another, another service? I believe it's from LinkedIn. Oh, I believe okay. it's from LinkedIn. Yeah, um, interesting. I mean, LinkedIn were interesting when they started. I remember that their service was really non-responsive and really slow in terms of their actual infrastructure. I used to get frustrated a lot with it. I also remember the UI was really confusing and ordinary. Mm. Um, they, yeah, they, they, they sort of an, an interesting one. I, I sort of put them in a slightly separate category to the, the, the other social media networks. And I guess it's almost, it's almost a proxy of the, the enterprise versus the consumer space. You know, in the consumer space, the value proposition needs to be more immediate, more compelling, um, 
you know, it's 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 harder for the companies to work out how to make revenue, but when they do, they they often hit the big time. Whereas LinkedIn has been making money f- for quite a long time already. Hmm. Yep. yep, must have something. <laughs> I've dug up that article um, about Bahrain. Um, article title: Bahrain ministers urge to have Twitter accounts. Bahrain's p- parliament on Thursday called on all ministers and senior officials in the country to have Twitter accounts to boost their interaction with the citizens. And that was on October the 18th, not that long ago. So there you have it. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I really can't see that uh, working too well. But, um, you know, I think Twitter tends to be a, well, any kind of social network tends to be an avenue where people vent their frustrations. Um, And when you have a sort of a a majority uh, population, uh, you know, frustrated with a minority uh, group of uh, ruling class. I really can't see having Twitter accounts as uh, lasting a particular long time or having any success. But uh, maybe they'll use it as a as a way to uh, track down the uh, the insurgents. And uh, <laughs> oh, look, yeah, it's a com- complicated part of the world. Um, you're listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter on the It's a Monkey podcast. Um, remember, you can tweet us at Monkey Podcast. And even if you, uh, as the ad says, if you want to try Manage Flutter for a month free, just tweet us. Tell us you heard us on the podcast and we will set you up with a free Manage Flutter account. I also saw, James, today that Twitter are experimenting with a like button. Uh, yeah, it looks like they're uh, they're changing the or or at least testing changing the terminology of the uh, the favorite button to either a, a like or a star. So it doesn't look like they're um, changing any of the any of the functionality. Basically, just sort of changing the the naming of it to see if it gets any more activity. Um, I mean, the favorite button's always been quite interesting. I've I've used it sort of once or twice. Do you do you get much use out of it? I use the favorite button a lot. Oh, okay, what I use it a lot. For? I use it to for a couple of reasons. I always like to collect articles relating to Twitter, interesting articles to Twitter that I tweet out on the Manage Flutter account. So I follow about two and a half thousand people. So my stream is pretty active. When I see something. I just hit favorite. I I favorite things that I find interesting and read again later. I favorite interesting quotes. So usually when I go back to my favorite list, there's a whole heap of interesting relevant stuff there. So it's a a way for me to curate and aggregate some of the interesting Mm. content on my my stream. In fact, I'd love a tool to be able to you know, somehow do something, file it or tie it into something a bit easier. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, I think probably these uh, the testing of the various terminologies is probably, uh, you know, just to see if they can get more people to engage in it uh, in that way. Favorite's probably a little bit of a, an ambiguous term. And something like star is, you know, probably more in terms of the way you use it as sort of pinning things to, to come back to later. And if the corporates could tweet out things and they could see how many people star it or favorite it or, or there would be some 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 extra analytics around that. Um, I heard something yesterday that um, Twitter's revenue numbers are going gangbusters at the yeah, moment. Really? Um, so be interested to see if we if, if we see an IPO at uh, at some stage and what, what what their numbers are. Cool. I think uh, I think we should get some some shares just passed, <laughs> you know. Get some uh, 
before market shares, whatever they're called. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we've uh, we've serviced 1.1 million Twitter users, which is about mm, what points? How many Twitter users are there? About 400 million. Uh, I thought it was sort of 200, two around the 200 million mark. Was it? Was it? Yeah, I think so. So uh, half a percent. Yeah, half a percent. Yeah, something. It's it's something. Um, it's the 23rd of October. I did get a request from someone to mention the date more. I think when you download podcasts sometimes, and especially you're listening to tech podcasts and things move so fast, you might not be sure how relevant this, the, um, you know, the topics are. So um, I am mentioning the date, the 23rd of October. Uh, James, do you listen to podcasts much? Uh, oh, voice broke a bit there. <laughs> Winter, he is not 13, <laughs> yeah. Um, he... Um, yeah, I listen to uh, I listen to podcasts. Uh, I used to listen to them a lot more. Uh, I used to listen to quite a bit, a lot of sort of video game related uh, related podcasts. Had a list, um, but uh, yeah, these these days not so much. I think it's kind of hard to to find time to actually do it. I used to I used to have a really long commute into the city, and that was when I used to get all my my podcasts in a few years ago. But um, yeah, not these days, unfortunately. Yeah, I um, definitely the commute time is a good time to listen. I actually use it. Um, I love podcasts. I listen to um, some of the entrepreneurial ones. Stanford um, Entrepreneurial E Corner, whatever it's called, they they have fantastic um, podcasts. You know, interviews with entrepreneurs from the, uh, from the Valley. There's on ABC Australia Radio. They have things like All in the Mind, which is really good um, relating to sort of. Um, neuropsychology and things like that but the time I find at the time that I find that I actually use a lot of podcasts is when I'm when I'm doing housework because I hate it so (laughs) much that unless I'm feeling really mentally (laughs) stimulated Um, so coming up next we are going to talk about Twitter and smart people on Twitter. We'll be talking to Sheree Curtis, who is head psychologist and organizational psychologist for OneTest, and OneTest provide tools to the recruitment um, industry. And um, we'll be finding out a little bit about this research that they came up with, which pointed to the fact that uh, if you are a heavy Twitter user, um, there's a very good chance you may be um, some of the, one of the smarter ones in the bunch. So um, stay with us. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by ManageFlitter. With ManageFlitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. Welcome back. You're listening to the It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber, where we talk about everything tech-related. And as most of you know, I love Twitter. I've, uh, one of our businesses is built around Twitter, Manage Flitter, and I use Twitter a lot. So I was very excited to see earlier this week an article with the title, Bright Thinkers More Likely to Tweet According to a Study. There's some research that's come out of Australia. Nice to see some some research comes out of uh, this part of the world. We're always talking about American research. I was uh, happy to see that uh, um, this research was put together by a company that's just north of uh, of the border in Brisbane. Um, that um, 
came up with um, some findings that showed that people with uh, quote-unquote better cognitive abilities or smarter people tend to use Twitter more. So I was really excited to, uh, obviously it um, plugged into my ego and I tracked down the company and um, I am happy to have on the line head of psychology um, Cherie Curtis with me. Um, sh uh, she's head of psychology at One Test, and One Test is a specialist um, provider of employment tests and employment assessments. And they put together this research. Cherie, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Kevin. Cherie, talk us through this research. Um, talk us through the study and some of the findings. Yes. Well, um, we did a fairly a uh, unique piece of work where we explored the responses of over two and a half thousand graduates that had completed uh, one test psychometric assessment as part of their graduate placement or recruitment process over the last decade. And we explored their life journey over that period of time on a number of variables in relation to career and general life outcomes. And one of the things we explored was their relationship between how they performed on their cognitive ability tests and their preferences for different types of social media. And when we explored that, we found something quite interesting that those people who indicated a preference for Twitter over other mediums, um, especially like LinkedIn, for example, uh, were actually those with higher levels of cognitive ability. What I found interesting is that only 4% of the respondents actually listed Twitter as their preferred social media cha uh, channel. That's um, a relatively small amount for graduates, I would imagine, or people of that age. It is. Um, I think when you explore how the numbers were distributed across the different options, uh, Facebook was another social medium that was uh, in the list, and it was by far the most heavily endorsed. And the notion of graduates um, and that life stage when they're in that initial uh, university transition into the workplace, it does tend to be fairly social. Um, so it doesn't uh, surprise us that this was the most heavily endorsed aspect. And then as people are emerging into that career transition, uh, I'd expect to see the activity then picking up through the LinkedIn and the Twitter uh, types of social interaction. Um, we also have to think about over the last decade uh, the tenure of these different mediums throughout that time and how that may also have endorsed those particular percentages. Um, but to find such a particular strength or correlation with yet such a smaller number shows the strength of that actual um, relationship there with cognitive ability and Twitter over LinkedIn. So why is that relationship, what is driving the smarter, um, the, the smarter people in the pack towards Twitter? What is the appeal to the intelligent people? Well, we can really only hypothesize, but if we do think about Twitter and the notion of, of what it actually is, it's a very fast-paced, dynamic, um, bite-sized information feed that runs continually in loops. And the whole concept in and of itself does require some lateral thinking to kind of wrap your head around it. It's not something that you can sort of um, intuitively understand what it is until you've played in it and then you get get hooked like it sounds like you are Kevin and then when you're getting engaged in it and really involved um, it just builds and builds and builds it does require quite a bit of um, you know, lateral thinking and attention span and concentration and the core elements of what cognitive ability 
is, which we consider to be your ability to retain, organise and actually apply information, is critical to being successful in your use of Twitter. So I think that's why it does require that level of engagement versus, like you said, something like LinkedIn, which is a bit more static in how it actually presents information. Um, I know that their forum, as you mentioned, is continually evolving and there's a whole range of rich features and enhancements in the evolution of that product where it is becoming more dynamic in the way that it is working. But at the moment, um, they are quite different mediums, Twitter compared to LinkedIn. So would you actually say if you were an employer today um, looking at um, some of your applicants, would it be, is this correlation strong enough to say that if one of these applicants is active on Twitter in a intelligent manner, in a productive manner, that it's actually a good predictor of their capability in some shape, manner or form? Look, I don't think we could go um, far enough to say that looking at their Twitter behaviour is a strong enough predictor of whether they're going to be successful in the job or not. But I do definitely feel and see that right now in the marketplace, um, the idea of a, of a resume in its traditional form is dying fast. Um, we're really seeing that we all live and breathe a dynamic resume or portfolio or profile when we have our social media accounts. And when employers are looking at potential candidates, they're looking at all of these profiles to gain a sense of who we are and what we do and how we're likely to conduct ourselves. So there's no doubt that how someone chooses to engage in Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or any other medium is now quite open for um, judgment and um, exploration by those who want to look at it. And definitely more employers are considering this, not only to review the suitability of people in light of all the other elements in a good recruitment process, like obviously considering um, psychometric assessment results and an interview and potentially some work sample details, um, but they're also using these types of mediums to proactively source and find candidates, which is a real flip on the way that social media is being used from a business perspective. Traditionally, it was a lot more about uh, candidates or graduates coming to an organisation, and we're seeing a strong trend the other way around where we're almost the sense of are you a candidate or are you not, are you in the job market or, or are you employed, is kind of evolving in that if you've got a LinkedIn profile, you've got a permanent resume up there advertising your skill sets, your availability for any job hunter or um, recruitment agency or simple organisation to look, find you and potentially try and poach you to what their needs are. So it's almost, it's a lot easier for employers in a sense today to get a, a a 360, a, a stronger and deeper dimension of the candidates. I'm always disappointed when we interview someone and they actually are not active on Twitter, on Google+, on Facebook. My favorite tends to be when they've actually built an entire website or they have a blog where I can actually really get a strong sense of them. It, re it really helps me. And I think it works both ways. Um, you, you know, the recruitment process is the candidate wants to be happy too. And if you can share a little bit of, uh, of yourself um, from the other perspective, there's a greater likelihood that the fit is going to match. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, recruitment is really, it's a lot like dating. It's, it's a bit of a game. Both sides traditionally have been trying to present themselves most favourably 
and hide all the bad stuff to create the best opportunity for them to, to win the job or to win the best candidate. Um, and particularly in grad recruitment, some of the big top-tier law firms or um, accounting firms invest a lot of money to woo the best graduates over to them. And likewise, um, you know, the whole entire recruitment industry has been based on on graduates trying to sort of ruffle their feathers and present themselves as, as the best one amongst the bunch. But now we're seeing that change, as you're saying, that it's now about insight. It's now about getting as full a view or understanding of the business or the candidate as you can to have confidence in that decision before you bring somebody on board. And I suppose that's where we tend to work with psychometric assessments, being that other angle to really have a look under the hood. Um, it's like when you buy a new car, you wouldn't usually just buy a new car off a picture. You might get a mechanic to look at it or you might take it for a test drive. And in recruitment or business terms, it's really about that same thing, having a look at all their profiles online, how they're engaging with the market. Um, this is a work sample. This is how they're likely to conduct with their behaviour in the workplace. Asking them to complete some assessments, getting them to do a work sample and attending an interview. All of these pieces together compound, compound, compound sorry, to give you more insight as to who this person is and what they're going to bring to the business. So do you have a Twitter account? Are you active on Twitter, Cherie? Um, yes, and I have to admit that I'm not as strongly involved in it as I should and could be. Um, but it is on my list to increase that, and especially after this research, it's a bit of a sting to kind of say I should be more proactively engaged. Um, but I am involved in that quite heavily and definitely in LinkedIn and, and Facebook and Google Plus and all of those activities. Um, I'm not sure how everyone else find out finds it out there, but I know from myself it is a juggling act. There's a lot going on. And I think the more that you try and engage social media as the core or a formal part of what you do rather than um, it's an additional thing to what you do, the easier it becomes. If it's just integrated in the way you work and your daily routine and your daily tasks, then it actually becomes, um, you become dependent on it. You feel out of the loop and a little bit um, in the dark if you're not up to speed and engaged in it as much as you need to be. I think you certainly hit the nail on the head when you said that you know one of the challenges of Twitter is its versatility. I think people do when they start getting into Twitter or trying out Twitter, they find it really difficult to people ask me the whole time is how do I use it? How do I enjoy it? They, they, they don't quite, um, they can't quite get their head around it as quickly as something as Instagram, for instance, which is mm. much more linear and has taken off really quickly amongst certain certain demographics or Pinterest, um, where Instagram, for instance, is just about a photo. People get it. They get it really, really quickly. It's it's linear. It's unambigu unambiguous. And um, yeah, it's almost like the social media um, landscape is is fragmenting um, quite a lot mm -hmm. into in, into different types of, um, um, the, you know, appropriate according to how people enjoy consuming their media. Mm. And I think that's going to be the key challenge um, for organisations is that social media is here to stay. And initially when this was new to us, organisations, and a lot of us are still doing that in the business world, we're trying to understand how do we adapt our policies and procedures to tame it, to put it in a, in a place that's safe for um, how we do business and how our employees engage with it. But we're seeing a strong trend now that 
organisations are actually realising it's not something we keep in the corner. It's ingrained in how we function and there's so many benefits for our employees living and breathing this in a professional manner that adds incredible value back to the organisation. But as we're seeing the evolution, as, you, as you're saying there, of new fragments or opportunities or um, different types of social media businesses arising, organisations are going to have to start to pick and choose. And we may see some consolidation again back in the market in terms of how it trends um, with the collaboration of some of these businesses potentially. Um, I don't think, I think there's a limited bandwidth in terms of how businesses and individuals um, can actively and appropriately engage with social media. And I think if we get to a point where there's sort of 20 mainstream social media um, platforms available, then we won't be doing them all well. And I think we'll need to either see some of them yeah, converging in how they work together or businesses really picking a couple and doing them uh, well, which will see shifts in the way that these types of organisations are structured and prioritised, I think, more broadly. I think there is a lot of fatigue in people rebuilding their social graph. So every time you sign up to a new social platform, social media platform, you have to start following people again and rebuilding your social graph. And I think, I think people are pretty fatigued by all of that. So, Cherie, since social media is such an important part of our lives, um, where does this fit into the day-to-day -day activity of the staff? I meet with a lot of business owners, and most business owners trust their staff, and, of course, that's, that's key in, in your team. You need to trust them, and you trust that they'll do what they need to do. But occasionally I meet some business owners that have some sort of social media or specific website filtering and social media bans in their workplace. In fact, I met someone it was only about maybe two, three years ago, and in her, her organization, she said they only allowed them internet access, external internet access, between 1 and 2 p.m., i.e. lunchtime. So what is your view on limitations within the workplace and social media or other websites? I find this really interesting, actually. Um, I think social media gets a bit of a bad name in this regard. I do hear a lot stories like you're sharing there where organisations are blocking external internet access or specifically have policies around controlled use of social media in one way or another. But for me, I really feel this is a a traditional performance management issue. These things are only problematic if the fundamentals that are required for the role or the business are not being met. Um, and I'll use an example. Within our business here at One Test, we actually have a foosball table and a ping pong table, amongst other things, that are available for the staff to use at any time. And we have full access individually to the internet again to use as we feel appropriate at any time. And with that, there's obviously a, a fair degree of trust that's empowered in us to do the right thing. But we also hold really high expectations on the performance levels of our team, and we have very high workloads and highly engaged and committed people. And we actually find that when you give both, you give high expectations and high degrees of trust, you get really powerful outcomes in terms of performance. Now, if someone was 
not meeting their performance deadlines or performance expectations, then I don't think it's the fault of the social media or the ping-pong table. It's a problem in terms of their performance, and we would have to explore that in more detail. If that issue expands past the individual, and now it's a company-wide problem where organisations feel they need to mandate the lack of access to the internet or social media, then there's a much more ingrained issue within the organisation um, that needs to be dealt with in terms of engagement, expectations, KPIs, uh, a whole range of things, rather than making social media the scapegoat. Um, by mandating or locking down certain things, it actually then requires or it builds a sense of distrust and can have quite a negative impact on the experience of the employee base and how their engagement with the business is, which then in turn can actually impact their performance at the end of the day. I actually remember some research that came out a few years ago when I think it was even before the social media um, sort of, uh, you know, wave and people uh, were using email a lot to send personal emails during Mm. work. And I remember some research that came out that said if people have the freedom and ability to email their friends and partners and family during the day, their productivity is actually higher because there is this type of ambient intimacy type of social connection that happens throughout the day that leaves them feeling less isolated and increases their productivity. Look, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, I see we've, we've really experienced a shift over the last 10 or 15 years where there used to be this concept of you know, work-life balance and the idea was that somehow we'd walk into the office in the morning and check everything personal out the door and then we'd engage in work for the next you know, eight to ten hours and then we would check it back out again and go home and, and engage with our friends and families outside that. And we were somehow robotic in being able to disconnect that really cleanly. That is completely gone and now we have this um, new work-life enmeshment where work and life really blend together from the moment you open your eyes to the moment you close your eyes and the boundaries are blurred and entwined. What actually happens is that you actually find, like you're suggesting the research is saying, that this connectedness and social angle to work increases productivity, that people are empowered to have more flexibility in their lives. Um, they can actually you know, do two hours of work from a different location from 6 to 8 in the morning, take their kids to school and then come into the office and their productivity can be far greater than if they were restricted to a sort of a, an eight to five working hours in the office kind of behaviour. Um, I know myself, the first thing I do when I open my eyes in the morning is I clean out my inbox, I check all my social media, and then I get up and get ready for the day. And by the time I get into the office at 7.30, then, then I've kind of got a fresh, clean, clean slate to work with and I can actively engage. Um, and that, that flexibility or enmeshment of work going into my personal life and personal life then being fluidly throughout the day does mean you're more connected and comfortable with your employer and you're not being disconnected from your actual social networks, which is so important. And I think it's a good thing in that it forces people to really find a job that they love because that if you are going to be enmeshed and you are going to be really... Um, the boundaries are going to be a lot more blurred. You really want it to be something that you love because y- y- it's no longer just tolerating something from nine to five. Um, so it, it really forces people to step up and, and, and find their life's purpose. 
Yeah, absolutely right. And that's what recruitment really should be about. Um, you know, for me, the idea that a candidate has to put on this, this best foot forward or this this front about all the good things is, is kind of counterintuitive because we really we all want to find the best fit. And the best fit is the job for me that I can be passionate about, that um, my family is comfortable me being a part of. And if it does encroach on family time, they understand that connectedness and there's work giving flexibility for family time. And the whole thing just becomes part of your identity. It's part of your your formal functioning on an everyday basis. That's not a forced issue. It's a choice. And when people choose to work on something, that's engagement, that's passion. And that obviously translates to better outcomes of performance, productivity, which is an organization's ultimate goal. And I think one thing that disappoints me a lot, particularly with the younger grads that we interview for our positions over here, is I get disappointed when they don't reverse interview me, when they don't really push me and just say, what are you about? What's your organization about? Why is this role available? Where am I going to be in five years and ten years? But I guess... Um, you know, there, there is an imbalance with young young grads often where it is hard to find work and they are prepared to be flexible and and willing, but it's it, it's not sustainable if it's in the wrong position. So uh, if you are a young graduate listening to this, don't be scared of reverse interviewing your employer. Your sm- a smart employer will actually really like that. Absolutely. I couldn't support that anymore. Um, we're really finding that you're right, potentially at that first wave of grad recruitment, competition is so high um, people are really trying to get in but the next job move or the next um, career step they take uh, we're finding there's a lot more of that proactive interviewing coming from the candidate side where now they've had an opportunity to be within the workplace for a while and even great gain greater insight as to what they're looking for because maybe that's not as clear straight out of uni and then they start to be able to identify what they need um, and putting those questions to an employer in the recruitment process is absolutely one of the best things you can do. And we have a lot of people that listen to this show that are entrepreneurs, business owners, wannabe business owners. And you guys published a terrific infographic all about this research that this, this Twitter, um, these Twitter results did come out of. And one of the elements that you have in your, in, um, in your inf- infographic is what grads want. And you have th- you've highlighted three um elements there ability utilization achievement and advancement and i think it's such an important thing to remember that in all the research salary is only one component smart people really want to grow into their work and i think a new business owners make the mistake of thinking that money is the only thing that matters for new hires oh that is so true um look our research told us that very clearly Um, Those three things you mentioned, ability, utilisation, achievement and advancement, were well and truly rated above any sort of um, compensation or pay. And we're really finding throughout all motivational research that um, pay has a motivational element to a certain point. And that is just saying that you need to be paid fairly. If someone has a perception that their salary is fair and equitable to their peers and to their skill set... Market rate. Market rate. They they need at least market rate. Anything less is insulting. Correct. And assuming that the market rate is met, then it's actually no longer a motivational factor. That's when everything else really becomes a core driver. So 
employers have a responsibility, I feel, to offer market rate for good employees. And when that's offered, the organisation needs to invest all their time and energies into addressing what's going to motivate this person to bring their best every day. How do I extract their ability to give me their best performance and um, a sense of accomplishment and achievement? And how do I create a vision for a succession plan through my business? Because when you can design that path, and create a vision for somebody within your organisation, they're more likely to stay. It's when people can't see an opportunity for them to grow and develop, they'll get restless and go elsewhere. Sri, I can tell hopefully we can grow our business big enough over here that we can have someone smart like you that, and with the title Head of Psychology. I think it would be really cool if we've got a, <laughs> we've got a role one day and someone's Head of Psychology in our, in our um, business. One, one other quick question, bearing in mind that you are in Australia as well. I feel that we have a really massive skills crisis in our industry that is incredibly bad to the point of really grinding down business um, growth to a halt. Is that just uh, my personal experience in our businesses in Sydney or is there really something else going on that somehow isn't making it into the public discourse? Look, it's interesting that you say that. There's a couple of key trends that are definitely being discussed. Um, look, within Australia specifically, um, one is our, our ageing workforce. You know, we have got millions of people across this country within this current and the next five years that will be moving into retirement. And um, the population coming through is just not at the same pace to match the numbers that are leaving the workforce. So we're going to see a massive shift there. Um, we're also seeing particular specialist areas absolutely facing a pretty lean and tight skill set. Um, uh, it was only a few years ago, and these do switch and change a little bit from industry, but I know a few years ago um, butchers were the hardest thing to find, and if you could find a butcher with a heartbeat, you'd grab him and tie him down as quick as you could. And, and then it swung to engineers, and there's a whole range of industries now that are facing that, that real challenge. Um, and we're also seeing financial pinches on universities and numbers in some of their postgraduate programs shrinking due to a whole bunch of reasons. So we're not seeing a strong indication that that skill set for some of the specialists' roles is likely to increase significantly in the next you know, short-term future. What we are really looking at, and I know the government's addressing this um, in, a, in a variety of areas again, is how we can import skills. How can we sponsor um, more strongly a whole range of different cultures and skill sets coming into Australia? But the other thing that smart businesses are doing is starting to realise that not all parts of our business need to be in one location and you can gauge skill sets that are offshore. So we can outsource or engage consultants or employ people that don't need to be physically with us in the same place. Um, there's a lot of organisations that are doing that really successfully. And again, I think you know, the power of the internet, the power of social media and connection really does open up this globalisation and an opportunity for us to access talent anywhere at any time. Look, I think it is a really core issue that Australia does need to address. The, all the business owners that I talk to, I've got um, one friend who's looking for five staff, has been for the last sort of three, four, five months. The problem is I feel that there's a, there's there's other elements that, that kick into that in terms of building out infrastructure and property prices, mm-hmm. and there needs to be a whole strategic outlook mm. on this um, on this issue. And I can't tell you as a business owner myself that by definitely 
the, the greatest challenge to us is staff. It's not competitors. It's not um, market forces. It's not access to capital. It's it's not um, you know uh, management and, and efficiency. It it is access to staff, mm. and um, it's really could could push entrepreneurs to to go offshore, and and Australia would lose all the all the smart people. It's it's it really is 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 an important issue. So I find I find your insights um really interesting, but um. Sheree, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Sheree Curtis, I've been talking to Sheree Curtis, who's head of psychology at One Test, who is a provider of employment tests and employment assessments. They've put together some fantastic research um, and an, inf- an infographic um, around, around graduates and what they're looking for and what social media platforms they use. We will put a link to that infographic in the show notes. Um, Sheree, I hope we'll be able to talk to you again in a couple of months around um, some of these issues. Uh, we really enjoyed your insights. Mm, definitely. I look forward to that, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me today. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye. So um, we are cognitively advantaged, do you think, James? Uh, I don't know. Well, maybe that's why I haven't been using his Twitter much as much lately. Maybe I lost some brain cells. <laughs> well, did you see? I mean, firstly, I think, um, you know, I, I enjoyed that interview. Um, Cherie is clearly a very, very intelligent person, but I, I enjoyed the fact she got slightly uncomfortable when I asked her, do you use Twitter? And afterwards, I hopped on her account <laughs> and I followed her. And um, she's not really much of a Twitter user. So. <laughs> not that active on Twitter, eh? <laughs> so when your own research sort of uh, opens up a can of worms about yourself, it is quite... Look, I mean, I think we can't overread into all this research, but I, I do think... I do think it is certainly more complicated than Instagram. So there is something to the fact of someone who enjoys consuming information and um, multitasking and, and that, you know, being more comfortable with that type of situation is going to be drawn to Twitter. Yeah, it is definitely interesting, um, you know, what you're talking about in the interview regarding, uh, you know, how how social media is used in, in the job search these days um, and, you know, not for necessarily any sort of, uh, you know, direct data mining, but just as sort of a getting a sense of the person. Um, it is kind of a sort of a, a nice proxy uh, for sort of getting a real view of a person. You know, when you sit in an interview, you get kind of a quite an artificial view. You know, people tend to put on a bit of a bit of a show, I think, in order to get the job. Um, and, uh, you know, social media can kind of give you some deeper insights into, you know, how people act, you know, most of the time. Um, you know, if you don't go out and delete your entire Twitter history before you go for a job, it it's actually gives you quite a bit of, uh, um, you know, quite a quite a long period of time over which to have a look at, you know, what somebody's thoughts are and what kind of stuff they're interested in. And it was one of the, I think it was one of the U.S. Um, vice presidents or um, governors. I can't remember that someone um, in the U.S. politics there wanted to create a system where people young people when they were 21 could declare some sort of digital bankruptcy uh yeah Do you remember, I that? remember that yeah where they could delete all of their mm, history they could just stuff. purge yeah. and just go and i i sort of you know reset button big reset button yeah you know i mean, I mean their generation you know, because they, they would always say, look, we got up to things in the 60s and 70s that were a lot worse than you guys did. The only thing is there's just no evidence of it. 
you know and and the kids today just um you go anywhere to anything there's cameras and live streamings and permanent digital record and there's been some tragic cases of cyberbullying um i just read one recently i think it was in the uk or no it was in the us where um some girl um sort of she was talking to some guy and he convinced her on skype to sort of show a bit of flesh and that got out to her school and this spiraled into a, a tragic mess that landed up in her suicide so you know the stuff is really it's, it's really significant and all these issues that technology is bringing up are, are, are pretty significant and um on one of the future shows I've, i do have lined up someone who's a specialist in this in this topic that we will talk about you know how how best can we deal with this without turning back the clock well firstly the clock's never going to be turned back in any case but but how can we be smart about it so um yeah look um interesting and I, i'm happy that this research came out of australia i was actually quite surprised to see that um oh really yeah this was um this one tester based up in brisbane mm. And they put together all this research. So uh, we're coming to the end of episode six of the It's a Monkey podcast. We really do thank you for listening. We enjoy putting this podcast together. So send us a message if you do listen to it. Um, next podcast, we are going to be talking about stem cells with a leading researcher um, in Australia. That's um, the head of a, a government body that's at the absolute cutting edge of stem cells will maybe come uh, cover some of the ethical and moral issues as well we are going to try and get that out within the week we are we are going to push to keep this this schedule up but uh, we are building a a startup at the same time and i had to drag james away from his uh from his dungeon from the basement but thank you for listening it's tuesday the 23rd of october and we will catch you next episode so it's a goodbye from uh, myself kevin and um see you later see you bye